Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. This is the audio version of each episode of the Empire Files hosted on Telesaur English. You can watch every episode at theempirefiles.tv. Donald Trump hit his lowest moment as president when he blamed both sides for the murder of Heather Heyer, an anti-racist protester killed by a neo-Nazi in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, you, you had a group on one side that was bad, and you had a group on the other side that was also very violent. And nobody wants to say that, but I'll say it right now. What about the alt-left that came charging at the, as you say, the alt-right? Do they have any semblance of guilt? But you had many people in that group other than neo-Nazis and white nationalists, okay? And the press has treated them absolutely unfairly. You're changing history, you're changing culture. The Unite the Right rally, which unified various neo-Nazis and white supremacist groups, tried to mask itself as simply defending Southern history. But the Confederate monuments they claim to protect are open symbols of white supremacy, proven by the fact that the vast majority of them were erected long after the Civil War, during Jim Crow and the Civil Rights Movement. Understanding how a neo-Nazi sympathizer got in the White House requires breaking apart the myth underneath it all, the glorified story of the creation of the United States in 1776, honored with countless holidays and monuments. To learn more, I sat down with Professor Gerald Horn, Chair of African American Studies at the University of Houston, and author of more than 30 books, including The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States of America. You mentioned the, the memorials for, for Civil War heroes, right? These Confederate soldier statues. But the thing is, people will defend this and say, no, the, this isn't about racism. This is just about preserving um, a historical account of what happened. I mean, what's your response to those people who say this has nothing to do with racism? Nobody's talking about tearing pages out of history books. <laughs> so people can, can continue to publish books if they want, lauding their ancestors who fought for a discredited cause. But when you're talking about monuments, you're talking about community sentiment. I mean, uh, I mean, for example, few people go to Germany and say, where are the monuments to Hitler and, and Goring? Few people, to go to, few people go to Italy and say, where are the monuments to Mussolini? I mean, I recall when I was living in North Carolina in 2003, teaching at the University of North Carolina. In the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill campus, there's this Confederate <laughs> statue with this gun pointing north. Obviously, they're meant to send a political signal. They're meant to send the signal that uh, racism has not been defeated, that white supremacy has not been defeated. It's, it's not only that, but I remember when I was doing my book on the, the Mexican Revolution, I, I went to El Paso, Texas to do research. And of course, El Paso, Texas has been the scene of massacres of Native Americans and dispossession of the Mexican-derived population. I didn't see any statues or, or monuments to this. And, I mean, there was a Holocaust museum. Of course, I, I think that the, the point is clear, that they're trying to send a, <laughs> a signal. And the signal is that your struggle is not over. So we're told a very specific story about the foundation of the United States with this revered 1776 revolution a very specific narrative, right? It's the Founding Fathers' desire to have freedom and democracy from the British monarchy. Dr. Horn, you detail in your book how it was actually about maintaining a slaveocracy. But before we get into that, 
Let's set the stage here. Um, in what ways were slave systems declining at the time, and why were they declining? Well, you may have to go back to the 1600s. At the beginning of the 17th century, that is to say the beginning of the 1600s, England was basically a failed state. That continued for a few decades. That is to say through the 1640s when there was the beheading of the king and a kind of quasi-bourgeois revolt under Oliver Cromwell when the king was deposed. And then you have the sugar boom. And the sugar boom, of course, leads to a takeoff and enslavement of Africans. It leads into a takeoff in wealth as well. And by 1672, you had the formation of the Royal African Company, that is to say the systematizing and regularizing of the African slave trade. Then by 1688, you have the real so-called bourgeois democratic revolution with the glorious revolution, as it was called, which in many ways was all about having merchants uh, take part of the challenge of bringing Africans across the Atlantic and the slave trade no longer being under the sole domination of the monarch, but opened up to the merchant class. And that leads to a gigantic leap forward in the slave trade. It leads to a gigantic leap forward in wealth. But it also leads to a gigantic leap forward in terms of slave resistance and slave revolts with regard to the Caribbean. Keep in mind that until 1750, London felt that its most valuable colonial possessions were in the Caribbean, particularly Jamaica. Uh, by 1730, it was felt that the whole colonial project in Jamaica might collapse. This causes a reconsideration by the Crown and leads to a what I call a great trek from the Caribbean to the North American mainland. When slave owners in the Caribbean started moving in mass from Antigua, from Barbados, from Jamaica to the North American mainland. Alexander Hamilton, for example, the star of this Broadway hit Hamilton. Of course, he was born in Nevis in, in the Caribbean and is an exemplar of this great trek that's taking place. But unfortunately for them, coming to North America did not mean that they escaped the wrath of fearsome, angry, resentful Africans. And so the Africans rose up in South Carolina, 1739. They began marching towards St. Augustine, Florida. But alas, uh, they were intercepted and were massacred in mass, with their heads, of course, cut off and put on pikes along the road to intimidate uh, Africans going forward. What were some of the tactics that slaves were using to revolt? Well, other than these mass slave revolts, of course, there are poisonings. That was particularly a tactic of enslaved women uh, who used poisonings. And, of course, they were oftentimes working in the household. Arson is another tactic. Uh, burning down the slave owner's home. Arson was very much in play in 1741 in, in Manhattan. And of course, just, just individual acts of resistance, murdering the master, fist fights where the master winds up with a crushed skull or something of that sort. I, I don't think you can begin to understand the violent culture that exists in the United States today without understanding the violence that led to the creation of this nation. Uh, for example, this fabled Second Amendment to the United States Constitution, which helps to justify individuals carrying arms, even into classrooms, mm. believe it or not. It comes from a time when the framers of the Constitution felt that there needed to be militias to suppress revolts of enslaved Africans, that is to say, uh, armed citizenry, European citizenry to repressed uh, armed Africans and, of course, rampaging and marauding Native Americans at the same time. And this is causing some in London to reconsider 
the very nature of this project of colonialism based upon enslavement of Africans. And so in 1772, you have Somerset's case, which seems to suggest that London is going to move towards the abolition of slavery. Certainly, as a result of Somerset's case, slavery is abolished in England, shortly thereafter in Scotland. This infuriates and arouses the slave-owning class in the United States, led by George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, even in the North, John Adams in Boston is a lawyer for slave owners. John Hancock, whose signature is on the founding document, of course, is one of the biggest slave owners in New England. Rather than see this form of property be abolished, causing great losses in their income, they revolt against the crown. I should also say that in 1763, there was the Royal Proclamation where London was tiring of expending blood and treasure moving westward, fighting Native Americans, taking their land. But George Washington, a land speculator, a real estate speculator, not unlike the current occupant of the White House, by the way, felt that this would jeopardize his future projects. And that's a further reason to revolt. So in other words, the revolt leading to foundation of the United States was based upon continuation of the slave trade, continuation of slavery, and continually fighting the Native Americans to take their land. We learn a lot about the Boston Tea Party, right? This emancipation from, from taxation. What was really behind the rebellion? There were those in London who felt that slavery and dispossession of Native Americans had to be restrained. And one way to do that was taxes putting a tax on imports of Africans. And if you had less Africans, there would be less of a need for land of the Native Americans. But of course, there were those in North America uh, who objected to that kind of taxation. So now we get to 1776 uh, and what we know is the American Revolution, which you call a counter-revolution. Why? I call it that because it's an, it's an attempt to reverse the tides of history, Britain was moving towards abolition of slavery, but also to limit their ability, the settlers' ability, to steal Native Americans' land. And rather than accede to that decision, they rebelled. Now, that sounds like a counter-revolution to me, and I think it sheds light on some of the problems we still have in the United States of America. Problems in terms of how the black population is treated, in terms of still seen as enemies of the state, because historians have known for quite a long time that by several orders of magnitude, the Africans in North America sided with London in that fight in 1776. They did not s side with the settlers, except that the historians haven't drawn the inference, the, the reasonable inference from that, that they were opposed to the settlers' project. And when you fight a war and lose, as the Africans did, as my ancestors did, you can expect to be pulverized and punished forevermore until you're able to turn the tables. Karl Marx said that capitalism came into being with the blood of African slaves gushing from its every pore. That's right. How did slavery provide the basis for the rise of capitalism in the US? First of all, in terms of cotton, uh, which is this major export market, um, and this major export opportunity, uh, the textile mills of Western Europe were supplied by the labor of enslaved Africans. Uh, it's felt that in 1860, at the time the U.S. Civil War was about to commence, that the most valuable investment in the United States was the investment in the bodies of enslaved Africans. You should also know that even though slavery was mostly centered in the South, 
a lot of the financing of the slave trade was actually in New York. Uh, a lot of the slave ships were leaving from Baltimore and Boston. Rhode Island had been a center of the African slave trade for the longest. So in other words, the ships were being dispatched from the North. Keep in mind as well that after the United States supposedly abolished the international slave trade under London and Haitian pressure, circa 1808, an illegal slave trade commenced. But you should also know that after 1865, you had a kind of diaspora. That is to say that slave owners wanted slavery to continue. So many of them moved with their enslaved Africans to Cuba, where slavery didn't end until the 1880s. Many of them moved to Brazil with their enslaved Africans, where slavery doesn't end until 1888. And of course, many of them moved to the South Seas, where they began to kidnap Melanesians and Polynesians and take them to work as bonded laborers in Queensland, Australia, and in Fiji in particular. That's one of the reasons why the Hawaii Kingdom was overthrown, because it tries to object. And for <laughs> objecting, it winds up being overthrown as well. Unbelievable. Yeah, you're even saying free Africans within the US were getting kidnapped and brought oh, to yeah. the South. Yeah, not only that, but dark-skinned, well, oh my goodness. <laughs> dark-skinned people anywhere on planet Earth mm. were unsafe, because US ships, <laughs> I mean, They'd sell into uh, Argentina, for example. Let's say Argentina had abolished slavery. They'd see a, d a dark-skinned person walking down the street, they kidnap him. Next thing you know, he's in Louisiana working on a slavery plantation. So you cannot begin to understand the great wealth of the United States of America without understanding the slave trade and slavery. I remember in 1989 when there was all the unrest in Eastern Europe and there was this idea that these countries were going to build a society like the United States. Well, I, said, I was thinking to myself, well, yeah, if you have hundreds of years of slavery and you can get people to work for free, sure, you can build an advanced <laughs> society too. It's, uh, it's scandalous what has taken place in this country. And sadly enough, the revelations are just beginning to come out, in part because for decades, Part of the problem with writing history in the United States is people like me, people of my ancestry, were not allowed into archives. That's only been a development of the last few decades. And now that that's the case, now I can go into the archives and uncover the stories, and that wasn't possible previously. Um, and let's move on to the Civil War. So many narratives here. Uh, on one hand, we're told that these altruistic leaders just really wanted to end slavery, right? On the other hand, it had nothing to do with slavery. Your thoughts? It has everything to do with slavery. And I, and I think my argument is that the so-called Confederate States of America, which rebels against Washington in order to perpetuate slavery forevermore, there is a reason why there are still Confederate monuments in the United States of America. Usually when you lose a war, you don't have monuments built to the losers. <laughs> but even Los Angeles, where we're now sitting, uh, there are still monuments to Confederates. There was just an article in the LA Times about that uh, a few days ago. Certainly in the South, in, in Texas, and Mississippi, Alabama, there are monuments to losers. And I think that the reason is, is that the Confederates felt that they were walking the footsteps of 1776. And that Washington, which was under tremendous pressure from British abolitionists, Britain being the major superpower of that time. So Washington was seeking to accede to international pressure. The Confederates, that is to say Dixie, 
Virginia, Texas, were digging in their heels and saying, hell no. And then that leads to the Civil War. The sainted Abraham Lincoln wants to resolve this conflict in part by A, enlisting Negroes, black people, to fight against the Confederates. And that, that of course, was the turning point in terms of defeating the Confederates who actually were losing, um, excuse me, the Confederates were winning up until Lincoln makes that fateful decision. But then, until maybe a few months before he was shot in 1865, his idea was to deport all the Negroes. Uh, there was talk about deporting us to Dominican Republic. I've often told graduate students that somebody could write a very interesting book on all the different attempts to expel black people from North America, going back to the founding of the United States, continuing through the 1930s when there was this African resettlement bill filed by Senator Theodore Bilbo of, of Mississippi to get rid of all the Negroes. My, my, Haitian, my book on Haiti basically ends with the failed attempt to deport all the U.S. Negroes to the Dominican Republic. It only fails by a very slim margin in the U.S. Congress. Otherwise, there might not be any black people in the United States to this very day. How was the Confederacy really defeated, and how did slaves and former slaves play a role in that? Well, W.E.B. Du Bois, the great black intellectual, wrote in a book called Black Reconstruction that came out some 80-odd years ago that there was what he called a general strike on the plantations, that the slaves basically uh, abandoned the plantations, and that they, of course, were necessary to production. And once the slaves withdrew their labor, the jig was up with regard to the Confederate States of America. Then, of course, it's what I already suggested, that many of the Africans then joined the Washington's army, the Union army, to defeat the Confederates. And, of course, that was not seen as, that was seen as almost like a violation of international law by the Confederate States of America, arming Africans, because that was something that you should never do is put weapons in the hands of black people, something that perhaps we can talk about that still has a contemporary resonance at, at a certain point. And so African prisoners of war were oftentimes just slaughtered in mass. They were not conceived, they were not seen as legitimate soldiers. They were just killed uh, when captured. In the aftermath of slavery, how did new rulers, white rulers, deal with this new sense of empowerment? <laughs> with difficulty. I mean, first of all, there's the organizing of the Ku Klux Klan. That is to say, the so-called white terrorist organizations that arise even as the Civil War is unfolding. Uh, their numbers skyrocket after the end of the Civil War, circa 1865, and they begin to terrorize black people in particular, trying to make sure that they don't vote, which of course is a theme today in 2017. There's a lynching, that is to say, the execution of black people who won't stay in their place to persecute black people who they feel are becoming too uppity, mm -hmm. who are trying to uh, basically exercise their citizenship rights to vote, etc. And then they continued throughout the 19th century. Of course, in cities like Wilmington, Wilmington North Carolina, which is on the Atlantic coast, uh, there is a coup d'etat to overthrow a black-led government and chase out of town all the black officials. So this Ku Klux Klan and this terrorism and this attempt to continue slavery then, of course, has a new uh, lease on life in the World War I period uh, when 
President Woodrow Wilson, a Democrat, seeks to impose Jim Crow or U.S. apartheid rules on the bureaucracy of Washington, D.C. At the same time, you have the new uh, cultural product that is cinema that begins to boom in Birth of a Nation, one of the first big blockbusters in Hollywood, basically glorifies the Ku Klux Klan. It was like a recruiting broadside for the Ku Klux Klan. It's one of the first movies ever shown in the White House. And that leads to a further surge in the Ku Klux Klan, which by the 1920s actually is ruling state houses and state legislatures and has expanded its remit. They had mostly, from their point of view, completed their dirty work by the end of the 19th century. But with, as I said, the rise of Woodrow Wilson, they have a new lease on life with Birth of a Nation. And then by the 1920s, they're marching in the thousands in Washington, D.C., have state houses, but then certain scandals cause their numbers to decline. But of course, they sort of morph in the 1930s into other kinds of Klan-like groups called the Black Legion, uh, which are particularly strong in the state of Michigan and are fighting union organizing, in particular, in the state of Michigan. Then they have another le new lease on life in the 1950s with the anti-colonial stirrings in Africa, the Caribbean, which gives, puts wind in the sails of black American protesters who start pushing against Washington. There's a major wa march on Washington in 1957, for example, which of course leads to a counter-reaction with the rise of the Ku Klux Klan once again in the 1950s and 1960s and the execution of voting rights activists, particularly in Mississippi in 1964. And now with the rise of Donald J. Trump, skipping over a few decades where they were also active, you, you see another sort of resurgence, not only of the Ku Klux Klan, but they, they have different names now, but the, the project is, is still the same. I mean, some people call them the, the alt-right. Not seeing the United States as some sort of uh, democratic experiment, but an experiment in constructing a white man's country that was only pushed back with extreme difficulty. And now, because that monster was really never defeated, ultimately, I mean, for example, the idea with regard to the U.S. Civil War, 1861 to 1865, is that the Confederacy was defeated militarily, but not politically. And that's clear in, in the sense that there are Confederate monuments all over the place. Their ideology continues to percolate. The whole 20th century was defined by this kind of anti-black mob violence, where you see news reports today saying, oh, this is the largest you know, mass killing in U.S. history. It's like, no, it actually is, that's not true. <laughs> there were several mob attacks. I mean, can you go over how egregious this was? Well, well, first of all, you need to realize that lynchings, which is, generally speaking, the execution of black men and women without due process of, due, without due process of law, usually hanging them from a tree or burning them at the stake and then cutting off the digits Oftentimes, I'm afraid to say that in certain white homes to this day, you can find pickled digits of black men and black women. You need to realize that these were like picnics. You can still find postcards of masses of whites watching as some black person is burned at the stake or swinging from a tree. It's, it's like an exercise in, a, in, in white solidarity. 
you'll see in 1957, when there's an attempt to desegregate the schools of Little Rock, Arkansas, there's a mass white revolt against that. In the 1960s, when there's an attempt to desegregate the University of Mississippi at, at Oxford, a mass white revolt. 1970s, to show it's not a, a regional phenomenon when you had the busing crisis in Boston, that is to say an attempt to desegregate the public schools. In Boston, there was a mass white revolt. 1980s in Yonkers, when there was an attempt to desegregate housing in this New York City suburb, there was a mass white revolt. It's political persecution. That is to say, it's political persecution because we, my ancestors, fought against the creation of the United States, fought against the idea of a white man's country. And so the idea was we should be punished and pulverized and persecuted forevermore. We were able to push back slavery, and then they slapped apartheid on us. And now we have a kind of neo-apartheid, because part of the complaint right now, as you probably heard, is that there, you know, there are too many unqualified Negroes in universities and colleges. And so there needs to be a systematic effort and campaign to root them out. And that's underway as we speak. But once again, I think that this kind of persecution is not accidental. It comes out of a particular political and historical context that has really never been grappled with honestly, even by some of our friends on the left. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the alt-right, because of course you hear this concept of, of whiteness, this, mm -hmm. this I, identitarianism, mm -hmm. whiteness is being threatened, whether it's on college campuses or just or just the whole race, white genocide, mm -hmm. right? This is somehow um, a thing. Where does whiteness come from? Well, that's a very good question. Fortunately, the scholars have been busy in, on, on this subject, and they've asked a fundamental question, which is how and, how and why did it happen that those who were warring on the shores of Europe, English versus Irish, English versus Scotch, uh, Irish Protestant versus Irish Catholic, English versus French, German versus French, Serb versus Croat, Russian versus Pole. Once they cross the Atlantic, somehow magically, they're transmuted into this white population. So how did, how did that happen? How, how, did, how did that identity get created? There was this opening of the door to European immigrants because the rulers of this country were concerned about the racial correlation of forces. They needed to have more people defined as white so that people could occupy the land of the Native Americans. So that opened up many opportunities. Let's talk about the NRA, mm -hmm. um, because there's another message being clearly sent to African Americans in this country from this organization. Back to the Black Panthers. I mean, mm -hmm. you could talk about that. Mm -hmm. You could talk about the insane call for a civil war. I don't know if you saw that ad. And then they used their ex-president to endorse the resistance, all to make them march, make them protest, make them scream racism and sexism and xenophobia and homophobia, to smash windows, burn cars, shut down interstates and airports, bully and terrorize the law-abiding, until the only option left is for the police to do their jobs and stop the madness. And when that happens, they'll use it as an excuse for their outrage. The only way we stop this, the only way we save our country and our freedom is to fight this violence of lies with the clenched fist of truth. I'm the National Rifle Association of America, and I'm freedom's safest place. Well, first of all, with regard to Black Panthers, I'm sure you're making reference to the fact that in 1967, the newly organized Black Panther Party in California uh, marched into the Legislative Assembly in the state of California in Sacramento armed to send a political message, and that was legal. That led even the NRA and even 
the recently elected governor of California, one Ronald Wilson Reagan, to come out in favor of gun control. Because gun control, it's, it's not meant for everybody. That is to say that gun control is meant for me and my community, but gun ownership is meant for the white right, the alt-right, the white supremacists, et cetera. The white right makes it clear that they're in favor of mass gun rights because they say, I mean, I'm not just making this up, that they haven't ruled out the possibility of a mass armed uprising <laughs> if there's a, a government not to their liking. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, what do they want? I mean, you know, they rule most of this country, I mean, but I guess that's not good enough. Sometimes people want to see Trump as an anomaly, once again, an aberration. But obviously they haven't been paying attention. In 1991, a Klansman and a Nazi, David Duke, got 55% of the white vote in Louisiana running for governor. Repeat that again, 1991. 1991. David Duke, a self-proclaimed Nazi and Klansman, got 55% of the white vote running for governor of Louisiana, took a massive turnout by black people in order to nip that campaign in the bud. And so when people sort of act like Donald J. Trump fell from the sky, they haven't been paying attention, which, is, which I understand, because if you start paying attention, it gets rather frightening. And even if you look at Donald J. Trump, if you look at the some of the key documents on the rise of fascism, such as the, the writings of Georgi Dimitrov, the Bulgarian leader of the 1930s who was fighting Hitler uh, all across Europe during that time, the idea was that fascism is usually a response to the rise of a left. And rather than accede to that, the U.S. ruling class, or excuse me, a ruling class, will then try to repress that left by any means necessary by enacting a naked, a naked bloody dictatorship of the most terrorist, terroristic and right-wing elements of society. Well, we're talking, uh, I think, understandably and realistically about a neo-fascist in the White House. But if you look at the United States of America, uh, even if you're an optimist, it's difficult to see a very strong left-wing movement. So how, how does that happen? Right. Well, I, I think it's in part related to the so-called race question. That is to say, even though Barack Obama was little more than the chief executive, uh, the, the chief of the executive committee of the U.S. ruling class and basically ruled in their favor, I think that for the alt-right, that stirred some of the deepest recesses in the far corners of their brain about the rise of black people, which has been part of the black scare, as I've called it. And so I, I think that this neo-fascism, in, in some sense, it, it's a reaction, a very distorted reaction to the Obama phenomenon. I mean, I don't think it's accidental that Donald J. Trump he begins to catapult into prominence by the, this birther phenomenon, saying that Trump, that Obama was not born in Hawaii, he was actually born in Kenya. And I think that that 
has brought us to this point where we are today. When you have a nation that's basically built on counter-revolution, not only built on counter-revolution, built upon a falsehood about liberty and democracy and equality, and you really never come to grips with that, well, a Donald J. Trump is just a ticking time bomb waiting to explode. They have this very naive view of the United States. They want to cling to this idea of the founding fathers and the framers of the Constitution and this document that will live forever when actually it was designed to encode the rights of slave owners and creditors. And it seems to me as long as you don't come to grips with that, well then all other kinds of opportunism becomes very easily. Because if you can rationalize genocide and you can rationalize enslavement, well you can rationalize anything. Thank you for listening to the Empire Files podcast. If you want to subscribe to our mailing list, please sign up at theempirefiles.tv. We want this show to be a resource for those fighting against empire both here and abroad. Let us know what you think on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Empire Files and Facebook at The Empire Files.